Lord Jesus, we do pray this morning that you would make the cry of our hearts align with the confession of our lips. Lord, as we have sung to you and to one another that, that you, Jesus, are enough for us. May that not merely be something that we say, may it be something that is true in our hearts. May you allow us to see the supremacy of and the sufficiency of your beauty and your glory so that we can say in spirit and in truth that you are enough for us. May you stir our affection for you this morning, Jesus, so that we come to see you for who you are and, and to love you and behold you as we should so that we can rightly say, so that we can rightly recognize that you are enough for us. We pray that in your holy and precious name this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. Yeah, you can be seated. Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you this morning, whether you're here in the room with us or joining us online. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, if we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders, and I'm glad that you're with us. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today, so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your device, I'd love it if you go ahead and find Philippians 1 will start in verse 27, though full disclosure, it's going to take me a little while to get us there this morning, but you can go ahead and find that and, and hang out there and wait for me. I will ultimately get us there to Philippians 1, 27 through 30 is our, our passage this morning. We're just walking through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi and glad that you can be a part of that this morning with us. The phrase is a personal relationship with Jesus. Right, it's a phrase that you've probably heard before, and you can easily imagine many, many, many pastors like me standing in places like this saying that very phrase this very morning in churches across our country. You can imagine people like me imploring people like you to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I think that there's a lot of beauty in that phrase. I mean, there are a few reasons why it's a really good phrase and a good way to think about and to understand what it means to follow Jesus. The first thing that I love about that phrase is the way that it communicates to us the very heart of Christ for us. If we think about it, it is a remarkable and an amazing thing that the King of Heaven, the one who was eternally existent and who will always be eternally existent, the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created, the one who sustains every molecule in existence by the word of his power, that that king of heaven desires a relationship with us is a remarkable thing. And it's a personal relationship with us. So he doesn't just want a relationship between a king and his corporate people. He wants a relationship between a king and each and every individual one of us. And that is really an amazing and remarkable thing that the phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, captures. I love that. I also love the fact that that phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, it captures the fact that no one just happens to become a citizen of Christ's kingdom because they were born in the right place or to the right family or at the right time or because they happen to be a part of the right church, right? People become citizens of Christ's kingdom because they decide to become citizens of Christ's kingdom. We've just sung that to one another and to the Lord, in fact. We have decided to follow Jesus. And that phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, 
It makes it clear that we must decide that. Right? No one stumbles into faith in Christ. We determine to put our allegiance in Christ, in Christ alone. No one automatically just wakes up one morning and finds that they are a Christian. We become Christians by choosing to follow Jesus. There is, for every believer, a moment when that believer is converted, when they are, as Paul says in Colossians 1, transferred out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you're going to know exactly when that moment was for you. There are many believers I know who don't know the moment of their conversion, but every true believer does have a moment of conversion when they decided to follow Jesus. And that phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, it, it conveys that. It reminds us of how critical and essential that is. And so it is a good phrase. But I want to acknowledge that there's also a massive problem with the way many of us think about and practice that phrase. You see, because for many of us, that personal relationship with Jesus, if we're honest, it's a private relationship with Jesus. That phrase, it conveys the idea, or it can convey the idea, that your relationship with Jesus is just about you and Jesus. That all you need is you and Jesus in order to follow Jesus. And what I want to show us this morning from Philippians chapter 1 is that that is not the Bible's vision following Jesus at all. If we think about the whole Bible, the whole Bible testifies to the fact that we are people who are created for relationships with one another. We're created for relationships with one another because God himself, the creator, exists eternally in relationship. Right? God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, the three persons in the one triune God of the Bible, they have always existed in perfect intimate fellowship with one another. There has never been a moment when that fellowship was disrupted or interrupted. They have enjoyed that relationship since before the foundation of the earth. God himself is a relational being. Relationship is a part of God's very DNA. And when he created humanity to bear his image, he wired that relational programming into our DNA as well. And you see that in Genesis as you look at the creation account when God created all things. He, he creates all things and everything in his creation was good. And then at the end of his creation, he rested because his creation was very good. But then Genesis 2 tells us that God drops Adam and Eve into paradise. And that moment, in that moment, right, homeboy, he lacked nothing. Right? He had intimate, sweet, personal fellowship with God. He was walking in paradise. He, he subdued and had dominion over all of God's creation. He lacked nothing. Yet still God said about Adam, it was not good for man to be alone. And so he satisfied Adam's aloneness by creating Eve from Adam so that the two of them could enjoy God together forever. See, Adam, he had God's relational wiring. Created in God's image, he was created for relationship, just as God himself exists for relationship. And so it was not good for him to be alone. It was not good for him to be outside of human relationships. And that's how we're wired today as well. We're wired for relationships. Right? There's, there's nothing in us that is content or that finds sufficient being alone. 
we're wired, we're programmed, the most introverted among us included, we're wired and programmed to be in relationship with people, to know people. That's why the pandemic has been so hard for so many of us, because we found ourselves isolated from those relationships that we're created for. And the Bible would tell us that it's not merely the fact that we're wired for relationship, but we're wired for relationship that helps us follow the Lord. And that's where we have to recognize the fact that the culture we live in has really shaped us in a different way. And this is where we come back to your personal or private relationship with Jesus. See, in our culture, our culture is one that celebrates, well, the words of the late president Herbert Hoover, he called it a rugged individualism, right? We celebrate being strong enough to be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We celebrate not needing anyone else, not needing anything else. We celebrate being independent and autonomous and having it together enough that you can go it alone. And the problem for us is that many of us have, have brought that rugged individualism into our understanding of Christianity. So we have a private religion that is ruggedly isolated from everyone and everything else. We think that all we need is me and Jesus. And I wanted you to, to put your finger on that. Before we look at how Philippians 1 speaks to this, I wanted you just to, to take a moment for some honest self-diagnosis this morning. And so I'm, I'm going to run through some questions. And of course, I don't want you to like answer these questions aloud. But I do want you to answer these questions. Because they, they will help us think about and consider if our expression of Christianity is too private and too individualized. And so just think through these questions for me this morning, if you will. Is there someone in your life who knows specifically how to pray for your growth and holiness? Or is there somebody in your life who knows the best ways, the right ways, the most relevant ways to pray that you will grow in godliness and in holiness? For most of us, the answer is no. Right? Most of us, if we're comfortable asking people to pray for us, we'll ask people to pray for like, circumstances in our lives. Right? Somebody in our family will be sick or will be facing a difficult job situation, and we'll ask people to pray about those kinds of things. But we're very reluctant to ask people to pray for areas where we're being tempted. Where we're very reluctant to be open with people enough to ask them to pray against a specific sinful tendency. What about you? Is there someone in your life who knows specifically how to pray for your growth and holiness? If you answer no to that question, then I think you're probably more isolated in your faith than the Bible would have you be. Is there someone in your life who has permission to ask you about specific sinful struggles? Or, similar to that, is there someone in your life who has permission to give you a hard word of rebuke or correction? What I'm really asking you here is, is there somebody who knows you well enough to know where you're weak, and is there somebody who has permission from you to speak to that weakness? Right? Is there a brother or sister in your life who you've opened yourself up to sufficiently so that where you struggle, they know, and they're praying about it and willing to ask you about it? 
And that conversation, by the way, it's not just going to be the things that you want to hear, right? It's going to be the things that you need to hear. It's not going to be words that just affirm you and encourage you. Sometimes they're going to be direct words of rebuke and correction because that person loves you. Do you have that person in your life? See, most of us, we just don't want to be known this much. Like, we're, we're pretty comfortable with, like, our best foot forward being known. We're pretty comfortable with the version of ourselves, with, you know, the house that we've cleaned up before company comes over. We're, we're comfortable with people knowing that version of ourselves, but we're not comfortable with people knowing what we really look like. And so, maybe there's 90% of you that you put out in the open, and other people know that 90%, but at the same time, you're, you're keeping that 10% hidden in the shadows. And nobody knows what's in the shadows for most of us. And the simple truth is that if you've got 10% of you in the shadows, then nobody actually knows you. Right? If there's some of you that's in the dark and the rest of you is in the light, well, then you're in the dark because nobody knows who you really are. If that's you, I think you're living a relationship, or you're living without relationship. You're living in your relationship with the Lord in a way that's more isolated than the Bible would have you be. Is there someone in your life to whom you regularly confess sin? Maybe sin against them, maybe not. Is there someone that you just open up to and say, you know what, I've really been struggling in these ways. I've really done these things. I've really sensed that this is the pattern of my heart and I don't like it. Is there someone with whom you are that open and vulnerable? Is there someone in your life who would notice if you stopped practicing spiritual disciplines? Right, if your Bible sat closed and unopened on your nightstand for weeks, is there somebody who would notice? Not because they see your Bible closed and unopened on your nightstand, but because they see your life. If you stopped walking in prayerful dependence on the Lord, if you stopped gathering with God's people, is there someone who would notice if you stopped practicing spiritual disciplines? And if the answer that you have to these questions, if it leans in any way towards no, what I just humbly want to submit to you this morning is the fact that your personal relationship with Jesus has, has probably become a private relationship with Jesus. And you need to see this morning, just as I do,
He was thrown in prison when the Lord miraculously delivered him from prison. He was then run out of town. And so the Philippians, they have seen with their eyes the suffering that Paul has endured. But now they've also heard of Paul's additional suffering because they've heard that Paul is in prison. They sent their pastor, a man named Epaphroditus, to visit Paul in prison. And now Epaphroditus has come back to Philippi and he has told them about Paul's suffering for the sake of Christ. And so they have seen these things and heard these things. And Paul's saying, what you're enduring, it's just like what I've endured. Right? This is the way. Right? This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We will suffer. We will endure affliction. But we must persevere. But the question becomes, how are the Philippians supposed to do that? Right? How are they supposed to handle that? How are they supposed to stand up in the face of suffering? Well, that's what verses 27 and 28 teach us. Look now at the beginning of verse 27. Paul, he says... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we need to be careful here to recognize what Paul is not saying as well as we recognize what he is saying. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through his son Jesus. It is the good news that God has showered his love and favor and affection upon us by grace, that we haven't earned in any way or deserved in any way the unmerited favor that he has bestowed upon us. That is what Paul means when he talks about the gospel, the good news. And so I want you to hear that Paul is not saying that the Philippians are to earn the favor that they have received. He is not saying that the Philippians are supposed to measure up to the favor that they have received simply because that's impossible. We could never earn the kind of favor that we've received from Christ. We could never deserve the kind of privilege and reward that we've received from Christ. Those things can only be ours because of God's grace. It could only be ours because of the free gift that God gives us. But what Paul is calling the Philippians to do here is to live in a way that makes sense in light of that free gift. To live in a way that makes sense in light of Christ's incredible sacrifice for them. To live in a way that makes sense in light of the status and the privilege that God has given them in Christ. Maybe think about it this way. Right, there are certain things that the son of a king will do and will not do. Right, as the son of a king, that man has privileges and he has status. Right, and so because he's the son of the king, he's probably not going to go begging for food on the street. He's probably not going to go like tricking people into giving him money. He's probably not going to like wait in a long line for an audience with his father, the king. But he has too much status and too much privilege for those things. But those status and privilege, they also sort of force a measure of responsibility onto him. And so he's also probably not going to like speak out in public against his father's rule. He's probably not going to burn his country's flag. He's probably not going to join or lead a rebellion against his father's authority in his country. Because those things would not be consistent with his status or with his privilege. With the position that he's been given as the son of the king, there's a way that he needs to live that's consistent with who he is. 
because he has status, his conduct will be consistent with that status. Now, brothers, sisters, if you are a Christian with us today, you too have status. You have the same rights and privileges before God the Father that Jesus Christ himself has. You could not have earned that status. You could not have earned that privilege. You could not have deserved any of it. But God, by his grace, has given you these things. And now he calls you to live in a way that's consistent with the status that you've been given. You have status. Your conduct needs to follow that status. Now this, by the way, is the way in which Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. In every other religion in the world, conduct determines status. So if you behave, if you follow the rules, if you follow the laws, if you do what the holy book says, if you follow all of the teachings, then God or whatever he's called will reward you with status. But in Christianity, status comes before conduct, not after it. In Christianity, God has gifted you status. And because he's gifted you that status, he asks you and calls upon you to live for him in a manner that is worthy of the status that he's given. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying live in a way that makes sense in light of the status that God has given you. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going in verse 27. He says, so that, live that way, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear about you. And he's going to name some specific things that he wants to hear. But what I want to point out is that he, he wants to hear these things, whether he's able to be physically present with the Philippians again or not. He faces that possibility that he may never see them again, that he may rot and die in this Roman prison cell, or he may be released and be able to come and see them. And his point to them is that he wants them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether he comes and sees them or doesn't. He wants their conduct to be consistent, whether he is present or whether he is absent. Now, I'm very open with my wife, Kristen, about the fact that anytime she leaves town and leaves me in charge of my four children, like our conduct is not consistent with the way it is when she is there. In other words, I parent my children very differently when she is not home than I do when she is home, right? When she is home, we eat vegetables. Like there's, there are a lot of salad on our plates. We, we go to bed at a reasonable time. We limit the amount of time we sit in front of screens, right? We, we make sensible, responsible decisions. We bathe somewhat consistently. When Kristen is not home, we don't do any of those things, right? Like we don't eat any green things when Kristen isn't home. We eat drive-through things. And we watch what we want to watch on the screen. And we play the games that we want to play on the screens. And we go to bed when it feels right, not when Kristen wants us to. And, you know, we shower maybe never until the night before she comes home, just so that she thinks we've been practicing good hygiene habits the entire time she is away. I do pray a lot more when she is gone, simply because I pray that, you know, she'll come home and, and save me from my four children. But anyway, uh, and I just say that not because they're bad kids, but just because I'm a really terrible father. Um, <laughs> anyway, my point is that my conduct as a father, it's not consistent when she is away with when she is present. And Paul urges the opposite of that, of course. But he says, whether I'm with you or I'm absent from you, continue to live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. And then he tells them three ways that he hopes they'll do that. He says, what I want to hear of you 
is, first, that you are standing firm in one spirit. You see that at the end of verse 27, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, here's the second thing, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And thirdly, verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Let's talk about those three things for a minute. First, standing firm in one spirit. This, this is the metaphor of the battlefield that Paul uses here. He, he's likening the Philippians to believers who need to take their stand in battle against the forces of the enemy. He has them mustered in a line and he tells them to stand firm, to stand their ground against the opposition that is coming their way. But notice, he doesn't call on them to stand their ground alone. He says stand firm with one another, in one spirit with one another. Like he envisions the Philippians not as single individual soldiers, but as a battalion mustered together to stand firm against the enemy. Secondly, he tells the Philippians to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, this isn't an individual thing here, is it? It's something that they're doing together, side by side. The metaphor now isn't the battlefield, it's the athletic field. Really, the picture that Paul has in mind is a team working together, moving together, thinking together as one. It would really be like the offensive line of a well-coached football team. We're all five or maybe six members of that O-line. They're able to move in the same direction together at the same time. They almost think as one. That's what Paul calls the Philippians to, striving side by side together as one unit for the faith of the gospel. And then thirdly, he says that he wants them to not be frightened in anything by their opponents. What does he mean there? Well, he goes on and he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And what Paul really means here is that when the Philippians' opponents oppose them, that's going to be confirmation of the fact that their faith is real. Right? If their faith isn't real, their opponents aren't going to bother. But because their faith is real, the opposition that the Philippians are receiving to their faith is confirmation that their opponents will be destroyed in the end and that they will be saved. But the the center of all of these ideas, the center of this passage is the fact that these things must be done together. In other words, this is the opposite picture of all I need is me and Jesus. Right? This is the opposite of your personal, private faith in Jesus. This is the opposite of all I need is just me and God and nothing else. Because Paul knows the only way that the Philippians will be able to endure in the face of what, God is, of what the Lord is bringing their way, that the world is sending against them, the only way the Philippians are going to be able to endure is if they do it together. Right? Paul knows that rugged individual Christianity fails every time. He knows that we need each other if we are to persevere in the faith. And so he calls the Philippians and us to stand firm in one spirit. He calls the Philippians and us to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. He calls the Philippians and us to take courage from each other in the face of opposition. He calls the Philippians and us to deep and meaningful community with one another. Because this is what we're wired for. We're simply not strong enough to endure on our own. When opposition comes, if we're alone, we will fail every time. When temptation comes, if we're alone, 
we will fail every time. When affliction comes, if we're alone, we will fail every time. And so God has ordained that we would follow him, not as a bunch of individuals, but as a people, together, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one another, taking courage from each other. But it occurs to me that you don't see rugged individualism in nature, right? In, in God's created order, you don't see creatures who are content to go it alone, right? I was thinking about that this week, even as I just watched some ducks or geese, I couldn't tell from a distance, like just a bunch of birds migrating south for the winter, and you know, birds are stupid, right? They have their brains the size of a pea, like they're, they're not intelligent creatures, but they know that they can't migrate south for the winter on their own. And so they fly in a formation and then when one of them gets weak, it moves to the back and the others move up so that they can endure together. I was thinking about this even when I was thinking about Redwood National Forest and you know, the massive redwood trees that are there in California. Some of these trees are like 2,000 years old and 300 feet tall. I mean, they're just amazing to look at. But, but tree people, I'm not a tree person, tree people, They say that those trees, though they might be like 200, 300 feet tall, they only have a root system that's five or 10 feet deep. It's a very shallow root system given how massive the trees are. And the only reason that works is because those trees, they grow in groves. And so those root systems can become intertwined with one another. And so that this massive tree, when the wind buffets against it, it can draw strength from the other trees around it through that root system. Even trees know that they're better together. Even birds know that they're better together. You just don't see rugged individualism in nature. And you don't see it in the Bible either. Right? Paul calls us to community. He says we need each other. Rugged individualism doesn't work. What works is what God has created us for. Relationship. Communion. Not independence, but interdependence, connection with one another. This is what's required if we're going to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Now, as I've thought about these things this week, and as I thought about this passage this week, I've really prayed that this passage would hit us in three specific ways. I mean, first, I've prayed that this passage would convict us that we need people so that if there are some rugged individuals out there who are trying to follow Jesus in isolation, we would be moved out of that isolation and into connection with other believers. And so if that's you, man, I just want to plead with you this morning that your eyes would be open to the fact that you can't follow Jesus alone and that you need people who know you, who will pray for you, not just about the circumstantial stuff, but about the real heart level stuff. I've prayed that you know that you need people who will rebuke you, telling you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear, who won't say yes to every question that you ask, but who will probe beneath the surface even when it hurts sometimes. You need people who know you for who you really are, who know where you're strong and where you're weak, who can pray for you where you're weak, who can encourage you where you're weak, 
when you need people. I need people, right? This is not something that anybody is too mature for. But our walks with the Lord, they are personal things. But they are not private things. We must have a personal relationship with Jesus. But we must not only have a personal relationship with Jesus. We must also have relationships with other believers who can encourage us in our relationship with Jesus. And so I pray this morning that if you're sitting with us and you don't have somebody who you're standing firm with in one spirit, if you don't have somebody that you're striving side by side with for the sake of the gospel, then I pray that you'll ask for help and that you'll find somebody. That you'll find somebody who can hear from you and invest in you and encourage you and pray for you. And if you don't know who that somebody is, I just want you to know that we are here to help you. I'm not just gonna like stick you with the first random person that occurs to me, right? We'll help you find somebody who you can build a relationship with or a group of somebodies that you can build a relationship with so that you can be encouraged and built up and prayed for so that you can endure. I pray first that this passage would convict us that we need people. And then, this is similar, but it's different. I've also prayed that this passage would convict us that other people need us. Right, and I'm saying that because I know there are some of us who we're pretty dialed into relationships. We have community, we have connection, but frankly, we look at that community and that connection as consumers and not as contributors. Right, we're in those relationships because of what they give us, not because of what we give to them. And so we come to those relationships and we just wanna take and take and take, and we're not yet convinced that we also need to give and give and give in those relationships. Now in my experience, like folks who walk in that particular rhythm of life, they don't do it because they don't wanna contribute. They do it because they don't believe they have anything to contribute. They don't believe that they have anything to give. And so what I'd hope to say to you today, if if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I've got some other believers in my life and we have some good relationships, but like, I don't have anything to contribute to that. Like, if that's you, like, I just hope you will know the precious power of simply giving yourself. I pray that you'll know how ridiculously awesomely the Lord can use simply you being present and faithful in somebody else's life. Right? God does not need you to be a Bible trivia expert. God does not need you to be able to park Greek verbs. He does not need you to be able to explain the intricacies of the Trinity. He does not need you to be able to summarize all of the themes of the different minor prophets. He does not need you to have a ton of Awana verses memorized in your back pocket. He does not need you to be a theological genius. He needs you to be faithful and present in someone else's life. And he will use that. He will use you. I can hope that you'll believe that there is precious power in simply being faithful and present for somebody else. Because there's somebody else who needs you. And God will use you if you put yourself out there in somebody else's life. And then the last way I've prayed that this would like hit us, punch us in the face this morning. If, I've simply prayed that this would give us a vision for the kind of church that the Lord calls us to be. The kind of church that we should strive to be. And what I mean here is that I really pray that nobody ever lands here at Life Church 
because they are impressed by us in any way. Like I really pray that nobody ever shows up and lands at Life Church because they walk in the doors and think, man, these are people who really have their acts together. I really pray that nobody ever walks in our doors and is convinced that we are people who are just profoundly mature and strong and independent. No, I pray, in fact, that people land here and realize that we're a bunch of weak, messed up people who are broken, who need a savior, but know we need a savior. And in fact, the only thing that's kind of like holding us together is the fact that we're all in that together. Right, I pray that we become notorious, in fact, for our weakness and the way we lean on each other and depend on each other. And the reason I pray that is because, friends, I believe with all of my heart that that honors Jesus. Not when a bunch of Christians get together and pretend like they're better than they are, but instead a bunch of Christians get together and lean on each other because they realize how broken they are. Do you believe that God could use that? Do you believe that God is honored by that? Do you believe that Jesus would get all kinds of glory if we leaned into that. And I do. 100% of me does. I pray that you believe that too. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you save people who are spiritual messes, not spiritual experts. We thank you and praise you for the fact that you don't expect us to be independent or isolated. We thank you and, and praise you for the fact that you have made great provision in your people for the fact that we don't have our acts together. We pray that you would move in us as people so that we can stand firm together in one spirit, so that we can strive together side by side for faith in your gospel. I pray that you would move in us so that we would be a people who are known not for strength but for weakness and who glorify you by the ways that we lean on you and on each other for your sake. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.